Okay, let's get started. On December 30th, 2008, the Case-Shiller Home Index, Home Price Index, actually reported its largest price drop in history. We're all pretty familiar with this story. Subprime lending, the explosive, explosive use of Fannie and Freddie, and rampant adjustable rate mortgage use eventually led to the collapse of the housing market. Uh, and then the subsequent collapse of everything from banks to global financial markets. In the midst of the uh, ensuing recession, real quick, how's my sound out there? I'm assuming I'm good. I got, I got everybody on over here, so if you want to say something, jump on the chat. If you haven't jumped in yet, uh, do so. Um, let us know you're here. If you're watching on TV and can't sign in, you're still welcome. All right. Well, in the midst of this recession, um, I worked with investors to purchase abandoned homes in the inner city. We had a vision of uh, providing quality uh, homes for underprivileged people. Uh, we wanted to fix the houses up nice and treat people with respect and be a good landlord um, and maybe change the dynamic of some of those neighborhoods. Um, we learned that you can't make very much money being nice, uh, which was kind of a bummer. Um, but uh, but by the time we started buying houses, um, many of them had sat empty for well over a year. There was hundreds, probably thousands of houses in the South Kansas City area where we were working. And uh, many of them were, had sat empty long enough for basements to flood and roofs to leak and food that was left in fridges to rot. And it was, uh, it was pretty rough. And I spent a couple of years um, going through houses uh, kind of walking through the wreckage of the financial collapse uh, to see which houses were worth flipping, which ones weren't. And, and, uh, and it was almost like when you see like those natural disasters where the president like goes to visit the disaster site, you know, and, uh, and walk around as, as though he doesn't have the best intel on the planet. You know, he still has to go walk the wreckage. And, and so in 2008, in South Kansas City, I, you know, I felt like the president walking through the wreckage of a national disaster, only without all the press and Secret Service and that cool windbreaker that the president wears whenever he, you know, goes. To, I did not have a cool windbreaker, but the image of walking through those houses and seeing presidents uh, walk through natural disaster areas came to mind this week as I dove into the passage this morning for this morning. Nehemiah is going to see the wreckage of Jerusalem for the first time this morning. This is uh, our third week of our series called Fixer Upper. In week one, Nehemiah hears the bad news of, Jeru of how bad Jerusalem really was. Uh, he was heartbroken upon hearing that his city was destroyed. The walls were down. The people were disgraced. And, uh, but that's very different than seeing it firsthand. Uh, in today's passage, Nehemiah gets a first-hand look at his fixer-upper. So let's start with the text. When I came to the governors of the Providence west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letter to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. 
I had not told anyone about the plans I had or that God had put on my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but the donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there and what, was, what I was doing. And I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king, and they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plans, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they said? I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We are his servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. So we dove into this series primarily because right now our world is a uh, total and complete fixer-upper. Things are a mess, and we all know it. Every meme is full of uh, just how big of a disaster 2020 has been. Uh, And frankly, the world wasn't that great going into this year. We need God to do a major rehab work in our world. And who better to take uh, rehab advice from than this man who flipped Jerusalem, which had laid in ruins for 180 years, and he flipped it in 52 days. So I thought we would follow Nehemiah and look what he did to kind of rebuild his city as we look at what we might need to do to rebuild ours. So what I want to do this morning is walk with Nehemiah through the wasteland of Jerusalem, completing our remodel project. And this, uh, this first thing that we need to, to look at is the fact that this is the first real assessment Nehemiah has taken of the actual problem. He's heard about it. We made sure, uh, he made sure that he had the necessary resources to take care of it. He met with King Artaxerxes and, and laid out the necessary resources for the work. This is the first real look at the work that needed to be done. And I think this is a really important first step. See, I'm, I think assessing the damage uh, comes pretty naturally when you're flipping houses. You know, in fact, every single design show you've ever seen you know, has that opening where they go through and show kind of the before pictures. And most of them have that cool computer overlay that comes down and shows what they plan to do to the space. But when you're actually dealing with something real, when you're dealing with our nation or when you're dealing with uh, our churches or our families or even our own hearts, we realize this is not a design show that it's a little harder to to really take assessment of the condition we're in. 
We can't just walk through and, and look at what's broken. I mean, honestly, how many of us are willing to look at our country even, this country that we love and we're so proud of, and see through our national pride at, at what is really going on? I'm not talking about venom. I'm not talking about anger with our country. Honestly, anger is a part of the, the American culture. We, we, we live in a country where we're allowed to dissent. And, and, and being angry with our country is one of the most American things we can do. But I'm not talking about anger. I'm, I'm talking about really riding the landscape and looking at the damage. Stuff like the fact that America represents 4.4% of the global population. And yet we consume 20% of the world's in, uh, energy. Or that a massive study of the 11 wealthiest countries in the world and America's healthcare system ranked dead last in almost every category. We rank last in equity of care, efficiency, and overall health of citizens. The area we did lead, or we have the highest infant mortality rate and the highest expenditure per capita. We're 40th in the world in life expectancy, and we're the most overweight country in the world. We're one of the lowest of all the developed nations in access to the Internet. 84% of our population has access to the Internet. and the majority of the developed world, that's over 95% now. We have the most incarcerated citizens per capita. 22% of all the imprisoned people in the world are in America. And again, we have 4.4% of the population. 30 years ago, America was number one in quality and quantity of high school diplomas. Today, we're 36. 14% of our new teachers will quit within their first year. 33% within three years. 50% won't make it to their fifth year. And I could obviously read stats all day but the bottom line is, most of us feel in our guts America is the greatest country on earth. But do we really look around at, at the wreckage? We have to be willing to look at the damage like Nehemiah did to truly assess how bad things are. And our churches aren't faring much better. Regular church attendance in America has fallen 20% in the last 20 years. And that's actually a skewed number. Because 20 years ago, regular church attendance meant you went to anywhere between one and three services per week. We now call regular church attendance one to two services a month. And even with the different measuring systems, we've still fallen off 20% in the past 20 years. We're now at about 50% of the population goes to church one to two times a month. 60% of boomers are regular churchgoers. Gen Xers are close, 55%. But less than 40% of millennials who are now adults are attending church regularly. And our families don't look much better. 40% of kids today are born into a single family household. That's almost half. That's up from 5% in 1960. 30% of kids, one in three kids, will go through a major family dynamic change. So changing your parenting structure, a divorce, something that by the time they're six. One in three. 
Depression is at an all-time high in teenagers. Screen time is off the chart. 30% of American girls, one in three American girls, will be pregnant by the time they're 18, or are getting pregnant by the time they're 18 right now. That's the highest rate by far amongst developed nations. Nehemiah sat on a donkey and he assessed the damage in Jerusalem. I sat on the internet this week and, and just kind of rode through studies and surveys and, and statistics. But ultimately, it's the same thing. We have to assess the damage before we have any hope of fixing it. But I think it's more than just statistics and studies that we need. We need the ability to read and hear those stats and be honest with ourselves about what they mean. We need to be authentic. We need authenticity. The ability to, to be real about the way things are. So, I'm going to look at a couple things, a couple key points maybe from, from Nehemiah's donkey ride and see what they mean to us. First, he says this, Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. First thing Nehemiah did was he assessed the damage alone. He was alone. He took a couple people with him. But for the most part, he didn't start publicly. He didn't start on Facebook. He started alone. Nehemiah didn't take in the opinions of others about how bad things were. He rode the city firsthand to experience the state of affairs. I think this is sometimes a lost art in our day. We really take time, to quiet time, to process what's going on in our world. We're so connected and so plugged in, and most of us are, are so trapped in the hamster wheel of life that we rarely take a minute to stop and look at the condition of our lives, the condition of our nation, the condition of our, condition of our own hearts. Very few of us stop long enough to, to look at our own hearts and, and ask, how am I doing? We don't ride the metaphorical town of our own lives to, to see how things are. But there's a huge difference between hearing a report about things and and experiencing it for yourself. When my oldest son was between seven and nine, I think, I would come home from work and Esther would be, you know, frustrated and she would say, Josiah was snotty all day long and he was a pain in the butt and blah. And I would, and the, the kid was an angel anytime I was around him. I didn't understand it at all. I was like, and I, and I was like, hey, are you giving your mom a hard time? He's big, no, what? Why? I was like, babe. And so I just assumed, you know, she's exaggerating. Not a smart thing to do. Just marriage advice. Not a smart thing to do. And then one day I'm on, I'm on, uh, I'm on a payphone, actually. Okay, millennials. Payphones were these things that you used to, no, you guys remember payphones at all? I'm on a payphone, I'm talking to Esther, and, and we're talking about something, and she kind of pulls away from the phone for a second and goes, hey, you guys need to pick up your toys. And in the background, I hear, and I was like, who is, who is over? She's like, nobody, that's Josiah. That's the way he talks to me all day. I was like, are you? Oh, oh, like, I had trouble finishing work. I got home that day, and we had a much different conversation than we normally did. 
Experiencing it for yourself is much different than hearing about it. In the background of a phone call, I got to experience something that someone had tried to explain to me, and I didn't get it. And this sounds trite, but believe me, it's not easy. Even though the statistics are really challenging, most of us would stand on a housetop today and and shout with full pride and conviction, America's the greatest country in the world. It's hard to sit down and go, we need work. We really, really need work. We're slipping. And how much more is that difficult in our personal lives? We don't want to admit when we've made mistakes. We don't want to admit when when our lives are falling apart. We're, we're proud. We, we don't want people to judge us. We, we don't want to admit when we've blown it and we're not doing a good job. We don't like to own our own failure. It's hard. It's embarrassing at times when our lives are a mess. We have this tendency to want to hang on to that shiny image as long as we can. We fear judgment. We... We fight being authentic because being authentic might mean we have to admit we've failed. But until we are authentic, we have very little chance of fixing anything. And the first person we have to be authentic with is ourselves. Nehemiah Nehemiah rode the city alone. He took in the damage. He owned just how much work had to be done. He was real with the state of things. Jesus gives us this example of of these two men that stood on a hill. And one stood there and he he took inventory of how amazing things were. Thank you, God, that you've made me this way. Thank you that that I have all these things. Thank you that I'm a pretty good person. And next to him was this sinner, this tax collector. And he says he couldn't even lift his head to heaven. He just beat his own chest and said, Forgive me, God. Because I'm a sinner. And Jesus drew his disciples' attention to these two men and he said, that one went home today ready to fix things. He went home today justified because he owned where things were. It all starts with authenticity, but from there it, it moves quickly into community. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials or anyone in the administration, but now I said to them, you all know very well the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. If we don't own to ourselves how bad things are, we don't have much chance of fixing them. But if we stay alone, we have zero chance of fixing them. Nehemiah knew that he would have to garner the help of everyone in Jerusalem, every able body, if he wanted to complete this work. In fact, this is one of my favorite parts of this book. It's named after one guy. It's the journal of one guy. And we have this tendency to think that it's a book about one guy. But Nehemiah gets nothing done if he doesn't have this conversation with Artaxerxes. He has to get help from Artaxerxes. Later, he names, he just, it's, a, it's one of the most boring chapters in the entire scripture, but he just names everybody that helped. He just gave a list. This person helped, and this person helped, and this family helped, and this family helped. And it, because this is not a book about one guy. 
We're tempted to believe this is Nehemiah's book, but this is a book about Jerusalem. He needed everybody. Nehemiah was barely more than a catalyst. And this is the hardest part of real change in any area. Is you have to decide to do it. You have to decide that you want to change. You have to get the ball rolling. But nothing real and and lasting happens when it's just you. You simply can't change the world. We all need people. Not only because the Bible says it's not good to be alone, but also because the work is too big for you. The reason this is hard is because you know you can change your own heart. What's frustrating is when to get anything done, you've got to change the heart next to you. You can throw an elbow now if you want. Anybody who's... The reason this is hard is because we can't change other people. We want to change other people. Most of us want to change other people more than we want to change ourselves, but we can't change other people. And that can get frustrating. And I don't care if you're talking about race relations in America or whether you think wearing a mask is essential or whether it's dangerous or what the most productive way for a church to reach a community in an era where people are falling away from the church or, or how to get your own family to connect and, and bond and flow together more smoothly or just to get your marriage to work. You can't do it alone. All, all you can change is your own heart, but oftentimes changing your own heart is not enough. You need people. You need people to come with you. You can change all day long, but if the person next to you won't change, it's really hard to get anything long and lasting done. And this isn't to say that personal heart change isn't important. Remember, Nehemiah in week one searched his own heart. He confessed his own part in the brokenness. He, he repented, he mourned, and he cried out to God to help him change, to help him do something. In this book, before he does anything else, he rides alone to look at the damage. It starts with you. It starts with you. But you need people. We need people. We do need heart change, but we also need people. Listen to what Nehemiah says. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. This is one of the toughest parts because not only do you have to own how bad things are, but the people around you have to recognize that too. We have to together as a community recognize that that things are broken and it's our job to fix them. And this is where most change breaks down. Either half the people won't accept that things are broken or, or we get in big fights on, the, on how to fix them and, and what we really need to do to make things better. And the next thing you know, we're at each other's throats about all these peripheral issues. And, and sometimes I think we could get somewhere if we would all just stop for half a second and go, but we all do agree things are broken, right? Can we just start there? Can we just start with recognizing that we all accept things are pretty bad, things are pretty messed up. At least it would give us one point of unity 
Nehemiah lists people here that were against the change. Sambalat, Tobiah. These people don't think things are bad, but the important thing was he, he garnered a community. He drew together people who were going to work with him to make things better. So we have to assess the damage alone in our own hearts. That's where it starts. It always starts in our own hearts. But we can't stay alone. We have to own the brokenness together. And this can be painful. It's painful when you admit we've made a mess of things. It hurts to look back and and see all the things we've done wrong. But if we're going to change anything, we have to do it. And this is the dangerous moment. I really do think this is a dangerous moment. When you, when you take a second, when you take that donkey ride through the wreckage, it can be dangerous. Nehemiah rides his donkey through the town and he even hits a place that he can't get his donkey to go through and, and that's what donkeys are made for. The wreckage is so bad he can't even get through it. And before Nehemiah picks up one stone, before he starts any cleanup, he's already got people working against him. The discouragement that can come from this assessment, from from really taking a second to look at how bad things are in our nation, in our churches, in our families, in your own life, can crush you if you're not careful. I don't care if we're talking about Rebuilding our nation after a big shutdown or the the current unrest or the fact that we're quickly becoming the richest, least educated, most incarcerated, unhealthiest people in the developed world. That can get discouraging. I don't care if we're looking at the state of our church today and that more and more churchgoers are describing church in, in consumer terms. What they get for it, what what uh, amenities the church has for them. The majority of people interviewed today, that's how they talk about church in, in consumer terms. Or if we're talking about the fact that the millennials, the second biggest generation in our country behind the boomers, are drifting further and further away from communities of faith, it can get discouraging. Even when we talk about our own families and how glued to screens we are. And we look back a couple of years ago when we, when we bought those screens and we thought it was okay and now we're wishing we hadn't and wish we could go back and make a different decision. Or, or some of us hit situations where we look back and, and wish we'd stayed in school or wish we'd made different decisions and we look back and realize that, that most of the situations in our life are because of things that we did way back where we can't change it. It can get discouraging. In our text today, Jerusalem was in terrible shape. Nehemiah couldn't even get his donkey through it. It had been that way for 180 years. And in all that discouragement, Nehemiah says this. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And then I told them how gracious how the gracious hand of God had been on me. And then I told them how the gracious hand of God had been on me. In the midst of this well-examined wreckage, Nehemiah talks about grace. 
He says, things are bad. They're really, really bad. But God has been gracious. I cannot stress enough how important this is. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you do not understand the grace of God, if you do not have a grasp on God's unmerited favor for you, if you don't grasp His purely amazing grace, then you probably shouldn't ride the city and assess the damage. Because without the grasp on the grace of God, it's too much. It can crush you. Nehemiah says, God has given us both his grace and the resources to do this work. He says, I told him about my conversation with the king. The king gave them the resources to to do this work. He says, God has given us his grace and the resources to do this work. And if there's one lesson that I hope will go deep into our guts, and I hope to bring it out in every sermon through the rest of this series, is that God has given us his grace and the resources to do this work. This has to be our confidence. It has to be. Can you fix things? No. No, you cannot. Can we fix things together? No, we absolutely cannot. What if we work really, really, really hard? Can we make a change? No, we absolutely cannot. But can God fix it? Is God big enough? Does God have the resources we need to fix it? Does does God have the real knowledge and wisdom to fix it? A million times, yes. This is the missio dei, the mission of God. This is His work that we get to join into, that we get to lock into and be a part of the restoration of all things, the redemption of all things, the New Testament calls it. That is our mission. That is our call. Nehemiah doesn't take a step until he's sure God is on board. If you remember chapter 1, he starts out by saying, God, go with me. Start to prepare things. Open doors. He knew this was God's call to rebuild Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was just a piece of that. The only way we can ever be honest about how bad the damage is in our country without just throwing in the towel and surrendering to pessimism and apathy is if we truly believe in the grace and resources of God. Because, man, things are a mess. And what difference could we possibly make in that? But God is a whole other story. God is a whole other story. The only way we can have hope for our families, especially our children who so desperately need God, is if we continue to believe in the grace and resources of our Heavenly Father. The only way we can have hope for our own lives as we struggle against our own hurts and hang-ups, as we come to the realization that many of our current problems are because of things we did wrong back where we can't change it, The only way we can face that is if we believe in the grace and resources of our Heavenly Father. Man, if you don't believe in the the grace of God and the power of God, 
Just keep the blinders on. Don't look around. It's too much. Stay off your donkey. Stay out of the rubble. Because it will crush you. We have to know we serve a big God who loves us and wants to fix things. If we don't go into it with that being the forefront of everything we do, then the work is too much. How do we respond to this? Every once in a while when you watch design shows, you know, they have those, those spaces or those rooms or those backyards where they, they come in and, and spend 30 minutes. And, and at the end you realize all they really did was like paint the walls and rearrange the furniture and throw in some brightly covered accent pillows. It's amazing how much a great accent pillow changes the room. I never thought I'd say that in public. Please shoot me. But those episodes always drive me nuts because I, I usually sit there going, you hired a design team for that? Like, we put that on TV? Like, they rearranged your furniture and decorated. That was worth cameramen? But there are those shows where they kind of walk into a disaster zone of a house and they, they do real work and they tear it apart. And it's, it's fun to watch them restore something that was basically dead and bring it back to life. But it always starts with assessing the damage. They go through and they look at just how bad things are. And I'll be honest, I don't think we can really get anywhere with God until we are willing to ride the damage especially the damage in our own hearts and be authentic about what we find there. And if you don't know how to do that, I recommend Matthew 5 to 7, chapters 5 to 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It would take me forever. I'd go through it this morning, but it takes too long. But I recommend this week, read Matthew 5 to 7 for a while. I think Jesus is giving us a tour of just how broken the human heart really is. He says things like, you think as long as you don't kill someone, your walls are standing. I say if you get wrongfully angry at someone, your walls are down. Like that spot over there. And like that place over there where your walls are collapsed. And like this spot over here. You've heard that if you don't commit adultery, your city's in good shape. I say if you even have lust, you're standing in rubble. But look at that spot. Look at this spot over here. You've heard it said as long as it's fair, you can retaliate. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say serve the people who misuse you. Now, look at the mess you've made. I don't think the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was so much to give us a way to live as it was a donkey ride through the wreckage of our hearts. We look around and we think everything looks great and Jesus comes in and goes, oh, but what about anger and what about lust and what about revenge? And not until we assess the real damage can we go to God and cry out for his grace and his resources? Realizing we can't fix that kind of damage ourselves. Realizing it's too big for us. I, 
I don't want to be angry. I don't want to get mad at everybody who cuts me off in traffic, but I don't even seem to have access to that, God. How do I fix it? I, the work is too big for me. I need grace and I need resources. But when we do finally stand on that hill and, and we say, forgive me, God, because I'm a sinner. I've made a mess of things. Does that grace from God come crashing in? On Monday when I was on Facebook, I was trying to engage in some conversations about the world our mess is in. And because I like to kind of stand in the middle and hold the tension in most discussions, and I found myself squaring off against people that I love in debates that were sure to make enemies. And, and I got off Facebook kind of frustrated Monday. And finally Monday night when I was in prayer, uh, I felt kind of like God spoke to my heart and told me just to get off Facebook for a while and spend some time with Jesus. So I deleted Facebook off my phone. And spending time with Jesus to me means diving into the Gospels where I can listen to him preach and where I can walk with his disciples and watch him do miracles, where I can pray with Jesus as he prays in John for us. And so I dove back into the Gospels, and I found myself in Matthew 5 again, crying out in the wreckage for God to save me, for God to heal me, for God to help me to rebuild, crying out for grace again. And it's ironic um, to be crying out for grace this week as I study this passage, because in men's group a couple weeks ago, we dove into this interesting relationship in first century Rome between a patron and a client. It was a major part of their economy. It was a major part of, of the first century Roman economy where rich people, which were called patrons, would uh, do a huge favor. They would buy somebody out of slavery or they would uh, pay off a big debt for someone and, and that person would become their client. And, and it's, it's weird for us when we read it because we def- it's very similar to an employer-employee relationship except that it's completely undefined. Like when we have an employer-employee relationship, it's kind of an equal thing in a way. Like I give you X amount of hours for work, you give me X amount of money. It's contractual, very clean. We know we're getting paid per hour, and as long as we work for those hours, it's fair to get paid. And But a patron-client relationship was this weird dynamic where the, the client was so excited for whatever the patron did for them that they would just just serve them. They would... If they ever needed anything, they would they would do it, and and the patron kind of felt responsible to the client now. Like I kind of they're they're kind of mine now. They need something big. I, I I'm their access to that, and and that client knew it doesn't matter what the patron asked for. I do it, man. They 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 helped me, and this relationship just really never ended. It just kind of went, and and you can see it sometimes when Paul talks about you know. The, the way some of the people almost funded the church. It was, it was kind of a patron-client thing. And, and when you get into first century economics, it's, it's really interesting how it exists. But the thing that we found most interesting was uh, this patron-client relationship. There was the foundation of kind of the Roman social economic system had two words for the way they described it. This This... The, the thing that the patron did for the client was called charis. They would, they would show them charis. 
And the thing that the client would do for the patron was called pistas. They would, they would, they would show them from that point on, from the point of keris on, they would show them pistas. And the, the words, the Greek words that those were translated into in English are keris, grace, and pistas, faith. When your patron showed you grace, when they gave you a gift, when they, 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 for no reason at all, took care of you, your response was pistas, faith or faithfulness. You would, be, you would show pistas to your patron. Your patron showed keres to you. So Paul picks this well-known relationship, this, this dynamic that existed in first century economics, and he used it as a metaphor for what it looks like to engage in a relationship with Jesus. Because we didn't initiate this. Our patron showed us keres, our patron did something amazing for us. Our patron showed us grace. He went to the cross and he said, I will buy you. I will pay your debt. I will, I will, I will take care of you. And all I ask in return is pistas, your faith, your faithfulness to me. I, will, I, I give grace, you give faith. So at the end of this week's text, when it says, then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. Nehemiah tells the leaders about this gracious hand of God. And he ties this amazing grace to this gift from the king. I can't help but be drawn to this metaphor that Paul gives us. Because we didn't initiate this relationship with Jesus. He showed us incredible charis. When we were lost in the wreckage of our own sin, we were slaves to our own brokenness. Jesus gave himself for us the ultimate gift. And our response is pistis, faith, faithfulness. See, Nehemiah, when he rode the city, he did so knowing he had a fix. In fact, all through uh, the book of Nehemiah, he's going to hit hardships, he's going to hit challenges, he's going to hit all manner of resistance, but he stays faithful to the task because he knows from day one God's grace is upon me. God has stretched out his hand of grace to me. It starts with the gracious hand of God that Nehemiah has already seen. As we set to rebuilding our nation or our churches or our families, we have to do so knowing the cross, knowing that his gracious hand has already been stretched out toward us. If we, don't, if we try to do a great work without the cross firmly in our sight, then we'll never... If we do it without the cross, we'll never find pistas. We'll never find faithfulness to finish the job. This amazing charis is the anchor and the strength and the provision that reminds us no matter what we run into during our remodel, God has been faithful. He has shown us grace. He did not 
abandoned us. He showed up for us. So this morning as we close, I would like to just fix our eyes on the cross. See, when we walk out of this space, when we, when we leave here, when we log out and, and head out into the world, when God breathes us back out, it's going to be messy. Things are ugly. The wreckage of our world will crash into us again. And we need to be firmly fixed on the cross because nothing else reminds us that we're not alone. Nothing else reminds us that way that God has shown his grace to us and wants to resource us to be a blessing to the world. God has not abandoned us. The cross reminds us we are never alone. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And when we look at the wreckage through the lens of the cross, it's no longer wreckage. Now it's, now it's people who need grace, who need God, who need us to reach out and serve them and love them. Because that's what the cross does. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great love. We hear about it. We see your faithfulness. We, and the way you stuck by Israel when you didn't have to. We, we see the good things you've made and, and your beauty and power. We see your power on display in so many stories that we draw to. But your love that's in the cross. Your love for us that says, I will go to any insane length to have you because I love you. I'm out of my mind in love with you and I, and I will not be without you. So, so I'll pay the price. I'll, I'll do the work. I'll... I'll I'll show the caress. I'll show the grace. We don't deserve it. But you show it. What else could we do but respond with our faith? So God, this week, I pray that we would combat discouragement with the cross. I pray that we would combat frustration and anger with the cross. I pray that we would combat all of the wreckage with the cross. I pray as we engage people who are mad, we would remember that you hung on the cross for that person. When we hear people being stupid, saying dumb things, doing dumb things, we'd remember that you went to the cross for them.
Firmly fix that in our eyes, God, because the world looks different when we see it as the world you are dying to save. Nehemiah dove into this project knowing you wanted to rebuild your city. Help us to enter into the world knowing that you want to save. You don't will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not your heart to go, oh, you've made a mess of things. It's your heart to go, let's fix things. So God, I pray that you would replace our our discouragement, replace our frustration, replace our anger, replace our, our hurt. Faith. That we would faithfully go out and spread your gospel. That we would faithfully go out and serve people. That we would, when we see our brother without a, a clothes, we'd clothe him. When we see him needing food, we'd feed him. When we see him thirsty, we'd give him drink. When we see him in prison, we'd visit him because that's faithfulness. Jesus, we need the cross to be the center of everything we do. Don't let us lose sight of that in all the mess and all the wreckage. So make us ambassadors of your cross this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.